0: One we started two years ago. Who was here two years ago when we started? (laughs) Very good, and uh, taken us two years to get through Mark, but but we've made it, and this is it. There will be no more Mark uh, for at least least a year. Uh, So, um, but we're going to turn to this last chunk and we're going to pray together and we're going to pray and read. Um, let me read this for us, it's on page 1023. Let's read, and I'll pray, then we'll dive in. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the de- entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Heavenly Father, please, please let this word live to us now, we ask. Please speak to us for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Right, this is it. This is the end. I mean, what an end. What do you make of that as an ending? if you are vaguely, even half vaguely awake, that's quite weird. That's a strange way to end your gospel. You've written a whole account of the life of Jesus, and then suddenly it all just sort of finishes. It's not how I'd have written it. It doesn't seem to end properly. In fact, so much so that at various points people have thought, this doesn't seem to end properly. And so people have added a bit more to try and finish it off for Mark. That's the bit you have in italics. Uh, The the kind of the chunk at the end. Now it's widely accepted that that last bit was not written by Mark. It was written by someone else, presumably who thought, "Eh, I'd like a slightly neater ending than that. And so they wrote another ending. But it wasn't writ- written by Mark. Mark stopped at verse 8, which asks, begs the question, why? Why would Mark stop at verse 8? Why would he finish his gospel with, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid? Yep, that's it. That'll do. I'll leave it there. That's strange. There are three possible reasons why Mark ended there, it seems to me. And let me be upfront: I don't have a clue which of these ch- is true. I don't think it's possible to know. Either... Mark intended to end there. He thought, oh, I'm going to leave it just there. He had a reason, he had a purpose, and he just left it. Or he was going to finish it, but something happened to him. Like he got arrested, or, you know, something happened, and he never finished it. Or he did write an ending and it got lost. Now, I know, I've read stuff this week, and all three of those views. You can find people who think all three of those views. And to be honest, I don't think it's possible to know. I don't think we can know which of those three is true. But we do know this. We do know that when the Bible was put together, when Mark was writing the gospel, it wasn't just little old Mark sitting there going, "Ha, what should I put in? He was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God was in control of what was being written. God was in control. So as Mark wrote, and it really was Mark writing, the Holy Spirit was enabling him, inspiring him, breathing through him to cause him to write the very words of God. So, whatever was going on with Mark, whichever of those three is true, the Holy Spirit intended it to end at verse 8. The Holy Spirit intended for Mark's gospel to finish like that with the Holy Spirit who caused it to be written, who preserved it. So that brings us back to our question, why? Why end here? There are no trumpets. There's no like fanfare. There's no big, woohoo, he's alive. that's just nothing. And that is precisely the point. As I've studied this this week and really puzzled over this question and sat in the library this week going, why, why did it finish like this? I think this is exactly the point that God wants us to understand. God will not allow his kingdom to be overtaken by hype and hysteria. In fact, let, let me put it this in. This is the sentence I want you to remember today, all Right? God does the most extraordinary things in the most ordinary ways. Over and over again in the Bible, that's how God works. He does extraordinary things, but in very ordinary ways. That's the kingdom of God. Now, look, we are so used to hype. Hype is all around us in this world, right? There's whole industries built on hype, on trying to publicize something, trying to create a kind of a, an excitement about something. Just think about the, the, when, when Apple next decides to launch a new phone, which will probably be next week, and... Um, You know, there's so much hype. The planning that goes into it, the trailers, the teasing on the, you know, the adverts, the the planning, the big crowd who come together, the lights, the staging, the big thing, the excitement, the music, and then the hush. There's then the app. The iPhone 27 or whatever it is, one, is unveiled. Unbelievable hype. It is just a mobile phone. It is so irrelevant. In a year's time, it will be out of date, out of fashion, and rubbish. And yet, if you'd arrived on Earth at that moment, you'd say, wow, this must be the most important thing in the universe at this moment. There's hype everywhere. Ed Sheeran's latest album. The hype, I mean, seriously. It's like, what, 14 songs? A couple of them are okay, but I mean, it's like, the hysteria social media has gone into mouth. It's like, Hype everywhere. Right now, contrast that to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The most significant moment in the whole of human history when the man who created the universe, who came a man, the king of the universe, who was dead, when he rose again. Do you see the difference? Staggering. And I think that's the point. It couldn't be more understated. If Mark tried, God does not engage in hype. In fact, I want to go further than that, right? God engages in anti-hype. He deliberately works in a way which undercuts any possibility of hype. He does the most extraordinary things in the most ordinary way, right? Why? Why? Because what God is doing in our world... Ding dong! is so subtle, isn't it, when someone arrives at church? Welcome to church, everyone. (laughs) Because it'll be ten minutes before they're up. Because what God is doing... This is why God will not hype up the resurrection of Jesus. Because what God is doing in this world is not something frothy and fake. He is involved in something that is solid... And real. Okay, This is hype. Okay? Hype takes something that is very ordinary and unexciting and makes it exciting. Takes something ordinary and does it in an extraordinary way. God takes something that is extraordinary and in order to not confuse us, he presents it in the most ordinary way. That is what is going on. And see, the problem is we love hype. We crave the spectacular. Don't you? I mean, come on, don't you? Don't you crave things that are spectacular? We love that th- it kind of sucks us in. We get sucked in by things that sound exciting and, and hypey. And it's always been this way. You know, God has always acted in a way that says, I'm going to deliberately try and avoid any danger of hype. So he said, so for example, the second of his Ten Commandments was, you shall not make an image... Don't don't try and make something flashy to represent me. That's going to hype things up. I don't want that. No images. What do the people do? They go, oh, oh, we crave something. We crave something a little bit more spectacular. (gasps) Let's make a golden calf. They make a calf out of gold, a statue. And they fall down and they worship it. And then they have this great big party. And it's like the launch of iPhone 8. It's hype. That's what we long for as human beings. We want the spectacular. We want the thing that indulges our desire for hype. That is why the end of Mark is disappointing to us. Because like, oh, is that it? Come on. This is your moment for something big and spectacular. But it's not there. And I think it fits perfectly what we've seen over and over again about the kingdom of God through the pages of Mark. We've seen this over and over again. Mark has been recording for us the most extraordinary events in the whole of human history. This man, Jesus, announcing the kingdom of God in his preaching, demonstrating the kingdom of God in his miracles, modeling the kingdom of God in his life, and establishing the kingdom of God in his death on the cross. The most extraordinary things. Yet it's all been painted on a very ordinary canvas. Galilee, fishermen. The elite don't believe in him. Even his closest friends are completely confused and don't get it. There's been suffering and betrayal and mockery and death. It's just so ordinary. And think again, Jesus over and over again in Mark's gospel sought to dampen down the hype. When he did a miracle, if you were here like two years ago, when Jesus did miracles, what did he often say to people they were to do? Don't tell anyone about this. Why does he say that? Because he says, this is not about hype. I'm not trying to build up some massive hysteria. I'm about establishing something that is solid and real. So I think the way that Mark ends fits perfectly with what God has been doing all the way through Mark. Extraordinary things done in the most ordinary ways. Jesus is not interested in riding the wave of popular opinion. And I've got to say, this challenges me so much. Because I think I'm captivated by things that look spectacular. So even right, Get this again. Okay? Even as I was sat in the library preparing this sermon, I was thinking, I want to find something clever. Right? So, (laughs) this is going to make Phil laugh. I I asked Phil if I could do this. Um, I I asked him what he thought. See, I I discovered this amazing link in Mark's gospel. Because there's a young man who runs away naked in Gethsemane. And there's a young man here who's in white. And I was like, I think this is like a link, a clever link. And Phil just looked at me and went, no. (laughs) Do you see, actually we have this kind of craving for, I want to find something impressive. And then, it's rubbish. It's pathetic. God has given us an ordinary message. But it's extraordinary. And I think we need to be really careful about this, infects us, this hunger for the spectacular. Now I'm going to keep saying this because you want me to hear this. What is happening here really is spectacular, but not in your definition of spectacular. That's why this ending disappoints us. No. In the darkness of a tomb, when no one was watching, in the silence and the stillness, the crucified Nazarene rose to life. There it is. No one was watching. Barely even a whisper. And yet there. That is the embryo of hope for our world. As the green shoots of life poke their heads up through the dusty desert, death-like land. There it is. And no one even saw it. It's the beginning of something extraordinary. And this is so real, so solid. It doesn't need hyping. It is about a king and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So all I want to do first, I want to show you how ordinary this is, and then I want to show you how extraordinary it is. That's a long introduction, but that's the main point of the sermon, right? Ordinary, extraordinary. They're my two points. I'm not even going to put them up for you because they're so easy. Look how ordinary it is. Let's get into it. Look, look with me at how ordinary this is. So, verse 1, the Sabbath is over. So, Jesus has been crucified on the Friday. The Sabbath has been Saturday. They've rested on the Sabbath. And look, we're told three women Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they may go to anoint Jesus' body. They want to give Jesus a proper burial. They're obviously keen to get this job done. They leave as soon as they can, early in the morning, just after sunrises. They, they, no, no messing around, no waiting around. They set out for the tomb. They're not expecting to find anything other than a sealed tomb and a dead body, right? That's what they're expecting. They're not going with a spring in their step, but with deep sorrow in their hearts. Jesus, the man who they'd followed from Galilee, was dead. Now they wanted to anoint his body. Can you you picture them? These three women trudging along to the tomb, downcast, full of sorrow, Three women heading for the tomb. They're the people that God chooses to reveal this to. Do you not see how ordinary that is? These aren't the these aren't the sort of charismatic celebrities who are going to change the world. They're just three ordinary people. Look, imagine Dragon's Den. Imagine you have an amazing invention. You have an invention that you think is going to change the world. And you're t- invited to Dragon's Den to show it to some, some influential people. And you walk in and they say, uh, we've well, got three people for you today. The first one is uh, Jeff from Peckham. He's a plumber, self-employed plumber. He's had hard times recently. Uh, the second one is Janet from Bogner, retired uh, a couple of years ago. And the third one is Rosie. She's two. She's uh, <laughs> two. Isn't there going to be a little bit of you that goes, "Ah, Disappointing. Disappointing. These aren't quite the people I was hoping to pitch my idea to. And yet that's that's what God does. He takes the three most ordinary, just ordinary of ordinary. And they're the ones. Now, Look, remember back in Mark nine, we're doing a bit of a recap here. Okay, for those of you who weren't here, back in not Mark nine, Jesus went up a mountain and was transfigured. He turned, he went, like showed his glory. He wanted three people to witness his transfiguration. Who were they? Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends, those who would then go preach the gospel to the world. But not here. Not here. Who are these women? Well, Mary Magdalene. We know from another gospel that she had been possessed by demons and jesus had set her free salome salome we know from one of the other gospels is the mother this is get this right this is cool is the mother of james and john so james and john got to see the transfiguration but it was their mum who went to see the resurrection isn't that cool james and john don't cut it nope not you we want your mum See, and then Mary, the other, um, the the other Mary, the mother of James, um, is. There were two apostles called James. This is the other one. Uh, anyway, doesn't really matter. Basically, it was the it was the apostles' mums. <laughs> That's who gets to go and visit the tomb. It is so beautifully ordinary, and they're so ordinary in their reactions, aren't they? The stone is, you know, they're going to the tomb going, how are we going to get in? Don't know. haven't thought of that. Mm, what are we going to do? Don't know. We'll go and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> they get there. It's, I just love how ordinary it is. They get there and the, two, the stone has been rolled away and they go in and they see a young man and they're alarmed. Ooh, <laughs> that's alarming. They're just so, it's, there's nothing pretentious. They're not some super spiritual giants. They're just like ordinary people going, ah, this is slightly alarming. And then the man speaks to them and uh, have a look. Um, in fact, even look at verse eight uh, 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Um, this young man, we know from one of the other Gospels, is an angel. But here, Mark is, de- Mark is deliberately anti-hyping this, right? It isn't, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to them. It's There was a young man Justin in white sitting there. Do you see how normal this is, right? So anyway, the young man delivers his speech. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> this has got to be slightly surreal. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This is his message, right? It's also a matter of a fact. Ah, oh, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Yes that's, yes, that's why you're here, okay? I've got some news for you. Uh, he was dead, he's risen, he's alive. Uh, look, here's the place where they laid him, see? Uh, now, if you could go, tell his disciples... And Peter, now a couple of weeks ago we thought about why and Peter, because Peter stuffed up big time. And Jesus wants them to know, Peter to know, no, it's still for you, Peter. There's something very precious in that, very, these ordinary failures of the disciples. Then go tell the disciples. And where have they got to go to see him? To Galilee. Now, Galilee isn't like just go two streets down. Galilee's like a town up in the north. They're in Jerusalem. They've got, to get, they've got to trek all the way back up to Galilee to go see him. Galilee is so ordinary. Imagine if Apple okay, were launching their iPhone 8. And they said, listen, we, we're... But this is what they decided to do. They said, we're going to launch our iPhone 8. We're going to have an audience of three people, and we're going to do it in Hull. Right? from Hull. <laughs> I'm not really attacking you today. Uh, three people in Hull. You'd say that's that's great. You'd never do that. And yet that's what they're being told. Go up north. Go up to the north to Hull, and there you'll see him. That's where they'd come from. It's like they're being told, Go back to the start. It's just ordinary everything is ordinary. And look. Look at verse eight. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Obviously, that's I mean, that's what that's any ordinary person would react like that. They're not, they're not some spiritual superheroes. Ordinary people reacting in ordinary ways. This is. Their first instinct is to say nothing and run away. This is not a moment of glorious triumph and understanding. Look, there's just no hype here. Got it? Now, I want you to know this, okay? If you've fallen vaguely asleep through my retelling of the story, I want you to know this. This is phenomenally exciting and encouraging if you can get this. God chooses... He deliberately chooses again and again in the Bible to reveal his extraordinary reality to people who are so ordinary. People who are full of weakness and fear and failing. He chooses ordinary people. I find that really encouraging. And God does that because it is how he guards against human hype. Over and over again, ordinary people take center stage in his extraordinary plan. It's what he does. And sometimes we beat ourselves up. Sometimes we feel we're just too ordinary to be of any real use to Jesus. We believe the hype. We fall for the fact that only the charismatic, interesting, skillful, intelligent, beautiful people, only they are useful to Jesus. That's rubbish. Jesus could even use your mum. That's how ordinary it gets, unless you have an extraordinary mum, who he could also use in some ways. Anyway. So I want to say this to you, okay? Ordinary people with ordinary reactions, all of our fear and our bewilderment, all of our stumbling and our misunderstanding and our foolishness, Jesus will use us in the middle of that. So do not despise the ordinary. Do not pursue the hype. Do not go looking for a wave to ride. If you go to a church and the message that is preached relies upon hype to carry it, do not trust the message. It's not true. If the message relies upon the atmosphere created rather than the content of the message, it is not true. God does not deal in froth. He deals in solid reality. And whether that hype is religious rituals or religious experience that is so beautiful and emotionally, or whether it's the hype of celebrity preachers who carry us along and everyone goes, wow, that person's so amazing, that person's so amazing, like, fantastic, we should all go hear this person. Whatever it is, when you strip all of that away, is there actually anything there? Is there anything there? When you get home to your room and you are on your own, when the crowds have gone and the music has been turned off and there's no flashy lights, is it still real? Is it real in the ordinary stress and fears of life? This is not escapism. In fact, the ordinariness of people is key. If you go to a church and you look around and you think everybody's just extraordinary, leave it. You want to find a church for the ordinary people. Now let me just let me just say I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with emotion and and joy, and enthusiasm and excitement, but not hype. Okay. It needs to flow out of the content, not be the thing itself. Right. Okay. So that's where Mark's gospel ends. And in fact, um, just to prove this, uh, it says this somewhere else in the Bible as well. Uh, it, says this for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ that's extraordinary but look what he does but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us God takes his treasure and puts it in a very ordinary clay pot he takes what is extraordinary and puts it in ordinary places that's the way God works but don't mistake it. For all of the ordinary stuff that's happening here, it is extraordinary. And in my last few minutes, we need to go back and see what is really happening here that is extraordinary. So are we all still alive? It is fairly warm. But let's, uh, let's, let's work hard to understand what is going because there is something extraordinary going on here. The kingdom of God is more real than anything. Right the way through Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God has been the issue. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. The kingdom is near. That is the good news. Jesus came to preach it, to model it, to demonstrate it, to establish it. The kingdom of God. Have a look at this from uh, Daniel chapter 2. This is what God said he was going to do. Hundreds of years, yeah, four, five hundred years before Jesus in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So God's promise is, I'm going to bring a kingdom that's going to last forever, never going to be destroyed, it's going to crush all others, a kingdom that lasts forever. Here's Jesus, I'm the king of the kingdom, I'm the king, king, power, 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 miracles, blah, blah, blah Jesus dead. That's a downer. It lasted three years. This is why the resurrection is so important. This is why what is happening here is so significant and why Easter Sunday morning makes us stop and think again to get back, right? Look, look at verse 1 again. Okay, here we go. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Slomy, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Ah! Now, If you haven't been here, sorry. If you have been here, you'll already think, anointing Jesus' body, anointing Jesus' body. Oh, I've heard that somewhere before. Oh, hang on a second. Jesus' body's already been anointed. Back in Mark chapter 14, there was a woman who came with spices and she poured it all over Jesus. And Jesus says, you've anointed my body for burial. Why did Jesus do that? Because these women weren't going to get there in time. (laughs) See? See? Because Jesus already knew that something significant was happening. Jesus already knew that his death wasn't the end. You see, suddenly you begin to see that in the ordinariness, there is something very extraordinary going on. Let's let's go on. Verse 2, very early on, the first day of the... First day, first day. Why first day? First day means something new. There's something new happening. This is the beginning of something new. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, in what is known as the great Exodus we're told that Moses is told, this will be for you the first month. When God does something new, it's first, first. Here it is, the first day as God does something brand new that establishes a whole new world. Something so significant, a new start, a new beginning. Why do you love new beginnings? Why do we love the 1st of January? Or a new term, or a new notebook. Don't you love a new notebook? Why? Then it just stop, stop, stop. Have you? Ever, why do you love a, no, a new notebook? What is it? Do you think any other animal, any other creature, sits there and goes, "Oh, look, it's new." We don't care. But it's because you were designed by God for resurrection, for new. And every time you open a new notebook, you go, "This." There's something inside you that goes. Yes, this is what I was created for. New. See, there's these little echoes. It's because of the way we're designed. There is no evolutionary advantage in having a new notebook. There is, I'm going to be stronger and fitter than everyone else because I love new notebooks. No, that makes no difference. But if you were created for new, you're created for resurrection. And there's a day coming when God says, I am going to make everything New, suddenly you understand that newness and first day of the weakness really matters. There's something extraordinary going on here. God is establishing his new creation right here in this moment. So here they're They're on their way to the tomb and they ask each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. What was the stone? The stone, the great symbol. As the stone was rolled over the the mouth of the tomb, it shut Jesus in this tomb. A great symbol of death, the immovable nature of death that seals us in and holds us captive and keeps us in the darkness and cannot be moved. And they get to the stone and what do they find? It has been rolled away. Death has been rolled back. This is extraordinary. In all the ordinariness, suddenly you see something so extraordinary happening. As the stone has been rolled away, death could not keep its hold on Jesus. Death is being reversed. The, uh, in, um, in the old days when there were video players, I don't know if you remember video players. You used to have it like before DVD players. The thing, I remember video players being invented. And the great thing about video players was you put the video in and then you could rewind it and you could watch it being rewound. Now, you can also do it on DVDs, but you, see you can't do that on like Netflix and stuff. It's just not the same. And you could watch the whole film in reverse. You could see it going backwards. Just me then. <laughs> and uh, here, is, here is what we've been told on this Easter Sunday morning. The video is going backwards. Death has been reversed. The stone has been rolled away. It is possible for death to be turned around. The young man delivers his message. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. It is a world-changing message. This man was dead. He is now alive again. And at this time of year, there is always surveys that come out about how many people believe in the resurrection. And there was one today I saw about some bloody stupid thing about some 20% of people don't believe, 20% of Christians don't believe in the resurrection, and so many percent of the population don't believe in the resurrection. And who cares? We don't decide history by popular opinion. Since when did we have a vote on whether things are true or not? They're either true or they're not. Now I think it does matter and we should be interested in those things because they help us to understand where people are at. But it shouldn't make us think, oh, perhaps it's not true then. It's not a a popular opinion. History is true because it happened. And then verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. And in those words, just as he told you, everything, everything that Jesus has said in Mark's gospel is proved true. Just as he told you. The resurrection proves everything. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, everything else he said is true. Because that's the way it works if I say to you, I can jump one foot in the air and I can fly to the top of the shard and I say, okay, fine, I'll prove it to you and I jump one foot in the air, that probably wasn't even a foot (laughs) and I say, there you go, I've proved I can fly to the top of the shard (laughs) you'd say, that doesn't prove anything if I fly to the top of the shard and then I say, now do you believe me about the one foot He said, of course I believe you about the one foot because you flew to the top of the shard. If Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then he does, he's flown to the top of the shard. He's done the most difficult thing. He's done the thing that proves everything else he says is true. Just as he told you, everything Jesus said is true. He is the king of God's eternal kingdom. He is the king who has established a kingdom that will be, never be destroyed. He's the king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He's a king who came to die for you. Because of all the ways in which we pursue the spectacular and all the ways we reject God and we pursue a life, of Jesus came to die for that, to pay the ransom, to set you free. And then he rose from the grave to demonstrate that he is the king. The eternal king. This is is extraordinary. And so this afternoon, I want us to just revel in the fact that Jesus is the most extraordinary king who rose in the most ordinary way. And I want us to see in that 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 is how God works today. We have this extraordinary message to believe, to trust, to live in. I want you to be left in no doubt this afternoon. This is true. He rose from the dead. And because he rose, you can trust him. And as we trust him, he then takes us, ordinary unspectacular nobodies and through us he changes the world. That's what he does. And we're going to pray together and we're going to spend some time just thanking Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. Um, And I'd love us just to take that time to respond. Um, And perhaps you want to perhaps you want to take this time to pray and to To admit the ways in which you have pursued other things, the ways in which you pursued other spectacular things. Will you come to him today? Will you live with him as your king? Give yourself for this kingdom that lasts forever. And the great news is the women didn't keep their mouths shut, the women did go. And through these women, the message was spread and spread and spread, and it's even come to us. So we're going to pray, and uh, then we're going to sing and thank him together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are the God who does extraordinary things. You have set up an extraordinary kingdom that is not some frothy, nice idea that has no real substance to it, but is solid and real and lasting and eternal. And thank you that we have the witness to that reality in the most ordinary of ways. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. And we praise you that death has been rolled back, that because Jesus rose, we can have hope and confidence for the new, this new kingdom that you are establishing and bringing about, Father, thank you for all that we've seen this afternoon, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to um, we're going to sing together, and let me um, let me make a suggestion. Um, as 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 we sing, as we come to take communion and stuff, my guess is that some of us probably feel pretty guilty this afternoon, we feel like we're pretty, like failures. Um, we feel like we've made a real mess of stuff. Um, I want to give you a picture. I want you to get in your head. I want you to imagine a new notebook being opened. And Jesus saying, I, I'm i making you new. I'm making you new. The old has gone. It's new. And I want us to feel the excitement of that this afternoon. The same excitement that you get better than the excitement you get when you have a physical new notebook. But that you, this afternoon, you'd allow Jesus to open the note, notebook on your life and to say, it's new, come on. I know you've had a bad week. I know you've messed up. This is a new week. This is the first day of the week. This is resurrection day. Let's go. And to live in the newness of what he's done rather than in the oldness where death wants to keep us trapped. Why don't we stand? We're going to sing Man of Sorrows. Let's worship him. Let's praise him together.